I remember um, it was probably um, a couple months from graduation. And so um, I looked at a lot of, you know, my classmates who were, I think, a lot of them who were scurrying to New York City. And um, I talked to Tavares and Tavares said, um, you know, well, I don't know what you know, you're going to do, but I'm going to the Arctic Circle to cut out a five-ton block of ice with a modified nine-and-a-half-foot chainsaw over a frozen river. And I don't know how I'm going to get it back, but, um, but that's the point. And I thought, my goodness, that's the most interesting. It wasn't a proposition because it wasn't asking me or, or inviting me to do anything with them. I said, you know, how can I be a part of this? I just need to be a part of this just for my own edification. And so he said, well, you could fly down to the Bahamas and you could stay at my family's place and you could crash on the couch. So FedEx was experimenting with a new frozen shipping cargo container unit that they were willing to, as a kind of a barter for exposure, to do it no cost. So to ship the heaviest thing you could ever ship, the most volatile, temperamental thing that you could ship to Miami. And then he arranged for a seafood ferry to bring ice from Miami to uh, Bahamas to Nassau. And there's this moment where I said, what's your role in this project? Are you literally going to help physically bring the ice into this freezer? I think we had 43 seconds to get it in the freezer before it deformed. And it was this pristine Judd sculpture looking piece of ice. We finally got it in there. And the idea of like, oh my gosh, the wonderment of it all and that a Bahamian brought it back. So it was all of those things and the representation of, you know, a Bahamian traveling to the North Pole and all the things that go with that symbolically. We raised the flag, his, his explorer flag that came back safely from the North Pole. I developed this symbol of nautical flags just celebrating the journey. And uh, actually the, the Bahamian Secret Service was alerted because they thought it was, you know, some type of gathering or plots like over the government. But there was basically like a yeah, like Secret Service detail that like showed up the opening. So the whole experience was just completely far gone and wild. But ultimately, the, kind of the takeaway was the easy path or the path that everyone else is doing didn't feel right or didn't feel like it had the right degree of, I guess, adventure or tension. Forrest Young is a designer and educator whose ranging knowledge stretches to all points of the map, challenging the listener in unexpected ways. At Wolf Olin's, he leads design initiatives for the world's most influential companies, recently completing a brand refresh for Uber. His work has been exhibited at MoMA, he's a recipient of many awards, and is a graduate of the graphic design program at Yale University. In this episode, we talk about, well, just about everything. You know, design, or as it was called when I was thinking of going into it, commercial art, was ever something that was, that was very attractive to me. And I think a lot of it was because I came from a family of artists. And little did I know that my grandfather was also a secret artist who was doing amazing fine art photography when no one was looking out in Route 66. And so I feel like I had all of this familiar support to have some kind of artistic expression. But I was, it was so familiar and so what I knew that at some point, probably in high school, was taking college level art courses, you know, when I was a junior, I was like really trying to push myself to um, get better at my line and, you know, figuration and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and then I thought, man, this is not, it doesn't feel new to me anymore. And it was absolutely terrifying. And so when I went to college, um, much to the disappointment of my APR teacher, he was just absolutely devastated that I didn't go to art school. 
you're just like, this is a tragedy. Like you're <laughs> like, you're going to get a five on your AP art exam. And then you're going to go do some like stupid professional trajectory. And I had to go through that to realize that design, as I understood it, as commercial art was actually just like the pinky toe of the organism. And when I became familiar much, much later um, with, you know, the constructivists and Elizitsky and Rodchenko um, or, you know, some of the, you know, the Bauhaus teachers, that design was expansive. It wasn't a straitjacket, which I always thought that it was. It was that if you can create, you know, um, a chair, you know, read fell, you know, you can create a house. If you can create a house, you can create a toothbrush, you can create a toothbrush, you can create a book. And also it was a great way to collaborate with other people. There was, a, you know, man raised collaborations and all these people that kind of had like a salon like essence to them. I thought, man, I guess that is design, but I didn't jump at the impulse. And I think part of it was I wasn't ready to go into a profession that felt so natural and it felt like I should be pushing to something that I need to, kind of get better at. And I didn't see design as this kind of endless pursuit. I thought that I, well, I can draw anything, do, you know, understand color and form. I want to do something that I'm terrible at. You know, it's always joked that my, my goal in life is just to learn how to roller skate. I couldn't imagine a reality in which I could go to Central Park and join the Central Park skate group. Like, I think I would have an antibiotic experience because I think that's the happiest group of humans. I will take the Pepsi Challenge with any kind of church organization or religious cult. Like the Central Park Skate Circle are the happiest humans I've ever seen in pure joy. It's just so fluid and so happy. I thought, man, roller skates one day. So that is my, 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 my bucket list is to skate um, the Central Park Skate Circle. But I think that ultimately I realized at one point you got to stop hedging your bets. You got to choose a path. But I thought... I want to do something more expressive. I want to do something more creative, like bigger and louder than I've ever been. And so while I was studying acting and I was doing very embarrassing web design and um, identity at the time, learning my way through the Adobe suite of products, I saw an invitation to sign up for a fabric competition. And again, to tell you that, you know, how bored was I or how, you know, um, ambitious I was in terms of doing something I had no idea I was doing. A giant roll of fabric came in the mail. I thought to myself, what are you doing? This fabric roll is enormous. And what are you going to do with it? Like, you have know nothing about it. You can't operate a sewing machine. Like, you're only going to fold it, take a picture of it, maybe Photoshop it. And I made a chair. And for me, it was a chair that was inspired by Picasso's bull's head and the idea that a, a bicycle saddle could be reclaimed and could be could take on a different form, right, of an animal or a creature. And so I called it the cycle chaise. And it won this international design competition. And so um, the Carnegie Fabrics Corporation gave me this, you know, windfall of cash. I was in interior design magazine. And all of a sudden, they're like, you know, sir, we have to exhibit your chair at the Merchandise Mart for Neocon. You're going to be next to Vidra. And I was like, what is going on? And I thought to myself, you have to make a decision right now because now like things are starting to gather momentum. And so I dared myself to apply to two programs. And so I do this thing called Zen Google where I go to Google and I try to be as calm as I can. And I just ask like incredibly vulnerable question into Google. And then I just accept the result as like, and just go for it. And so I said, best program for to study theater. And it was like Juilliard. And it was like best program for design. It was like Yale. And so then I just applied to both programs. 
that I knew that like, it's like the Fritz Perls gestalt two chair thing where you sit in both chairs and you're like theater design, theater design. And over time, there's just one wins. There's one that has a greater resonance and it's more authentic. I thought, okay, I guess I'm going to go to Yale and do design. This episode of First Things First is brought to you by Copywell. Copywell is Canada's fastest growing book printer, producing short and long run orders using the latest technology in digital inkjet as well as conventional offset printing. Their online ordering system makes it easy to stay up to date with production processes. Learn more at copywell.com and get a quote for your next print job. So when you got there, you made the choice to pursue design. Like, What did you see? Yeah, so I think design is very interesting. First of all, it's so interesting how many different definitions of design there are. There's the definition of, you know, what's the difference between, you know, the fine arts and the applied arts, right? You know, like, you know, somebody's giving you a problem or do you have a problem that you can't, you know, exercise yourself of. And so therefore you have to keep kind of solving it through, you know, your body of work. That's like the delineation version of artist designer. And I've seen a lot of you know people kind of speak about that. There's the kind of small D design, which is that I'm very much, you know, maybe in a romantic manner, um, caring about the incredibly small details in the craft and that everything feels bespoke. And there's a connection to that craft and that made thing that feels very much like a one-to-one relationship. Then there's like design, which is like this transformational thing, like big D design. It can be cultural transformation or change. And they're all kind of competing definitions. And I think where design's role of past, present, future comes into is not dissimilar from maybe those three definitions of design. Well, I used to think that the past was the past. And uh, and I say that um, before I was exposed to people like um, Alain Locke um, or philosophers that talked about the usable past. The idea that the past could be a creative act, that there actually could be a way that you can imagine or choose to create your past and not be um, put in in an asylum was something that was just mind-blowing. You know, seeing someone like uh, Pharaoh Saunders or Sun Ra, and they're like, oh, I didn't come from a slave ship. I came from a spaceship. And it's like, "Um, well, uh, okay, that's amazing. So you're now operating in this place of incredible empowerment. And you're like, oh, yeah, like, totally. Like, we helped them build the pyramids, and then we dropped in over here, and, like, you know, we we taught them how how to, you know, read. And the idea that, the past doesn't have to be something that's inherited and completely just digested without any type of resistance was completely eye-opening. But this idea that what I thought was a linear trajectory of the past is something that just happened before. The present is like the moment now that we can choose to be in if we want to. And the future is something that um, is like science fiction. And then I realized in looking at some of these figures that you could negotiate both the past and the future simultaneously, and it's much more of a loop. And so all of a sudden, I went from a line to a circle. And when it became a circle, I thought, oh, I can go so forward to the future that I'll actually come around to the present through the past, or I can go to the past and then actually find the future that will probably be emergent because there are these active patterns. There are these cyclical motifs of you know humans, what humans do, what humans desire that really hasn't changed. And so if you can find the pattern, you can probably anticipate what it will be. And if you go backwards in time, you can probably anticipate where the origins of or what it will be, what the trajectory is. And so the idea of seeing past, present, and future shift from a line to a circle was the transformative moment of me thinking about the future differently. Um, changing course a bit, what do you mean by diversity as a competitive advantage? 
Yeah, so I think a lot of the diversity and inclusion conversation that is very much, you know, incredibly top of mind, specifically in San Francisco and the Bay Area, both because of, I think, recent news about cultural issues at various places, um, but also the realization that when biases are incorporated into the products themselves, they lead to disastrous ends. And so I you know, talk about the Shirley card, you know, probably truncating or um, discouraging so many um, you know, photographers that were either looking to shoot people of color or people of color themselves um, because of a, a card, because of a device, because of a design that was incredibly flawed or one-dimensional. Um, or to talk a bit, a bit more about that? Sure. So the idea that actual products themselves could embody a bias that then um, results in one, people being discouraged, two, people being less safe. And so a lot of the technology is being developed for authentication, right? Whether they're gaze tracking or, you know, for instance, like, you know, for like a self-driving car to be able to scan UV light, you know, across the cabin. And, you know, you're looking at, you know, um, contrast profiles between skin tone and whites of the eye to determine whether your eyes are on the road or not. And it can detect people who are not people of color much better than people of color. And the idea that you could be safer or less safe as a person of color because a product could actually embody the bias takes it out of the diversity inclusion is something that's in vogue or is PR spin. It's actually like it's an emergency. It's an emergency because it's not addressed. You know, um, our cars will be less safe. Our homes will be less safe. Our cities will be less safe because, you know, the countries are changing and uh, the technologies are not keeping up or keeping pace with that change because of the ways in which, you know, products are being developed and seen. And so I think, you know, Shirley Card is just a tip of the iceberg. Um, you know, uh, there are a lot of other technologies that I think uh, are being called into question. But what I would say is that when I say diversity, I would love for diversity to stand for cognitive diversity, um, as well as, you know, um, diversity of, you know, kind of race and gender and, you know, kind of other kind of fluid ways in which people, you know, associate or define themselves and also accessibility. And I feel like accessibility is just this, you know, elephant in the room, you know, whenever, you know, designers have to, you know, solve problems at scale, there's always the question of, you know, well, does it meet double A AA or triple A contrast? And designers go, whoa, what does that mean? I've just been designing with gradients. It's like, well, there are a lot of people that can't actually see that color, um, whether it's red, green color blindness or heteronopia. And you can easily find a simulator online. And then all of a sudden they go, oh, it looks so dull and boring. And it's calling into question, really, what is beauty? Which I think is the right conversation for us to be having, right? There's beauty, which is... Um, you know, uh, uh, just a, a formal consideration. There's beauty and the kind of the jobsian sense of, you know, design is just how something works, like an elegant solution where we can look at that almost like a mathematical proof. But I think beauty in terms of something that satisfies one's inner desire, but then it's also beneficial for the larger group or whole is definitely where I need to go. And so I think cognitive diversity, meaning that, you know, somebody who's left-handed and right-handed, uh, somebody who's tall and short, somebody who can walk and somebody who can't walk, somebody who can see and somebody who can't see, as well as the kind of the traditional definitions. And I think it will give a competitive advantage to those particular product teams. I remember somebody asking me, how do you deal with all the microaggressions working in San Francisco? And for people who don't know, in San Francisco, there are a lot of microaggressions in San Francisco uh, by people who would define themselves as being, you know, um, left of center and, you know, for all the right causes. But everything from walking into a place and that hundredth of a second where you realize that somebody thinks you are a wait staff or you're there to pick someone up or they ask you for directions or they ask you where they can find something in the store. 
And it's, sometimes it's not it's spoken, sometimes it is, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. But all those microaggressions are like small little metal daggers that are just going on a daily, just like perforating skin, perforating skin. And at some point, I just chose to see those daggers as opportunity to realize different ways that people were perceiving reality. And that actually I was being gifted by having an expansive view in terms of all the different ways in which basically humans see other humans. And so it's like the ultimate, you know, user experience challenge. And so I said, you know, the challenge is turning microaggressions into almost like a hyper UX, you know, sensibility or empathy, because to be hurt means to know what it feels like. And if it feels bad, then one can actually have an expanded, you know, emotional space by which to be empathetic. So what's next for you? I'm very interested in helping to mentor more young designers and realizing as I kind of literally age in the profession that issues of representation, issues of, oh, I'll never forget when I was in the audience and I saw Forrest Young on stage. And it's the type of thing that sounds ridiculous. I'm like, I thought from working in the library at the uh, Cornell Fine Arts Library um, which my job was to dutifully remove the book jackets from all books that were coming in. And it was a great way for me to get exposed to artists I never heard of because literally it was just an ongoing train of books. And I would just take the book jackets off and read the little description and blib. So when Paul Rand's monograph came in with Stephen Heller, I thought, oh my goodness, this is African-American. Like this guy is clearly a civil rights, you know, fighter, a cultural hero. But like, I can remember seeing that book jacket and it, seeded an idea about a professional trajectory that was very real. And it was illusory and it was a distortion, but it was very real. And so I imagine, you know what, like, I have to make more time to do more speaking engagements or to talk to people who are trying to think about going to the profession or to be active in places of higher learning and not just be in these highly NDA'd cul-de-sacs, you know, working on, you know, science fiction projects, that there has to be a kind of a balance of the force. And I think that that's probably my, my next phase is going to be much more um, paying homage to that. To learn more about Forrest, visit wolfolens.com and follow him at 10 underscore 10 on Twitter and mcray on Instagram. First Things First is produced by Max Cotter. Frontier Media is a part of Frontier, a design office based in Toronto, Canada. We believe that design is more than visual. It's a process of exploration, discovery, sketching, prototyping, iteration, and refinement. That process can help create a better world. Our mission is to help others understand how that goal can be accomplished. To do this, we use design to create better and more purposeful products. We publish a magazine and produce this podcast to explore and celebrate the risks people take in the process of creating things that are original and worthwhile, and we work with clients to help them define their purpose and tell their story. To learn more, visit www.frontier.is. First Things First is recorded in Toronto and Vancouver at the Design Thinkers Conference, organized by our founding partners at RGD, the Association of Registered Graphic Designers, who represent over 3,800 design practitioners, including firm owners, freelancers, managers, educators, and students. Through RGD, Canadian designers exchange ideas, educate and inspire, set professional standards, and build a strong, supportive community dedicated to advocating for the value of design.